Before you were using our scripture lesson in Second Corinthians verses one and two. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Acacia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so 2 Corinthians is the book. Um, Before we go into it, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Father, for 2 Corinthians and for 1 Corinthians and Romans and Leviticus and Numbers and Revelation and Titus and every other book of the canon of Scripture. They all lead us to the Word of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you that you have given us uh, inscripturated truth, objective, propositional, Verbally inspired, plenary inspired, totally inspired, inerrant. We thank you that we can trust it. For you, Lord, superintended all of it, including Paul as he wrote this letter. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So as many of you probably know, if you've been around the church for a while, I'm not one that likes to spend a lot of time on introductory matters. Some preachers do. They spend a whole week or two talking about introductory matters. What I like to do is bring those out as the text sort of elucidates them as we go along. So having said that, there are a few introductory matters that we still need to talk about. So let's cover them today. First of all, The author of this epistle is the great apostle Paul himself. 2 Corinthians was at least the third missive that this wonderful minister had sent to the congregation in Corinth because we know that our letter was sent before 1 Corinthians because Paul references it in 1 Corinthians, but it is not extant. In other words, it doesn't exist So we have to trust that the Holy Spirit, for whatever reason, did not want us to have that in our canon of Scripture. And so this was at least the third letter that he wrote. It was probably written in about 56 A.D., and Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in probably 55 A.D. So it was shortly after 1 Corinthians, and Many of you know, as we studied 1 Corinthians, that there were a lot of problems in the church in Corinth, and some of those obviously got resolved. We're going to see that, evidence of it, in 2 Corinthians. This book of 2 Corinthians is really wonderful. There's some unbelievably fascinating chapters in it. Even chapter 1, chapter 5 is a great favorite as well. Paul has some wonderful autobiographical information for us about being caught up into the third heaven later in chapter 12 or 13. And so there's practical information about how the church gives to other churches or the presbytery or general assembly or how a church lives. There's so much practical information in it. There's wonderful doctrine in it concerning Christ, the gospel itself, the ministry and the church, because 1 Corinthians uh, and 2 Corinthians evidences the fact that the church in Corinth was nagged by the problem of false apostles. The apostle, especially in chapters 10 through 13 of 2 Corinthians, has to address that issue, and he takes it on and has to defend his apostleship against these false apostles, these workers of, of iniquity, these 
angels of Satan. Uh, so there are some serious issues in the book of Second Corinthians for sure. But without further ado, having said that, again, picking up other introductory items as we go through the book, let us today make it our gospel goal under Christ on this Sabbath day to be the faithful church sitting at Jesus' feet, looking at just two verses, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 of Second Corinthians. If you're new here, and I know we have some visitors, you uh, feel free to use the outline. We begin now. The title is Introduction to Second Corinthians. The doctrine, Second Corinthians is written to the church of Jesus to strengthen and encourage her. I think that's an important point to make and to keep in mind and be reminded of, namely that almost all the epistles of the New Testament were written to particular church congregations. Now, there were general epistles, obviously, like First John, which we just finished, and Peter's epistles, but typically they'd be written to particular congregations, or maybe in the case of Philemon, to a individual Christian churchman uh, whose name was Philemon. The Holy Spirit in Second Corinthians is not primarily communicating with the pagans in Corinth. This isn't a letter to Corinth, like the pagan city, the great immoral city of, of Corinth. Here, here's a letter for you. This letter is written to the saints of God in the church in that immoral city of Corinth. And that's an important thing to keep in mind. He's talking to you, the concrete, visible church, not those proud people that are too good for Jesus and sit at home on Sundays because they look down their noses at you and me and people that actually gather as the visible church. It's written to real Christians. And the message of the gospel only reaches the world of Corinth or Peoria County or any other place in the world when it courses through the lives of the members of the church in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and we do the ministry together, loving each other and showing forth what it really means to be a community, souls constituting Christ's body. Therefore, let's note that Second Corinthians is written to the church of Jesus to strengthen and encourage her. Initially, God's concern is first and foremost always with his own people. Now, at first glance, of course, people accustomed to the way of the world would say, that doesn't sound right, Pastor. How can you say something like that? Is it really true that God is first and foremost always concerned first with his own people? Answer, yes, it is. Those of you who've grown more accustomed to the word of God, the understanding of the gospel, understand that that is true. It is right. Now, one of the reasons this is so important is because nothing good can or does happen in the world unless it occurs through or via the healthy, growing, Christ-fed, and well-led church. Nothing good happens in the world unless that is happening. And the only way a church can be healthy is if its members feast on Jesus Christ, the bread of life, every single Sunday. And the only way this can happen is if they are fed the Lamb of God every Lord's Day via the means of grace we referenced earlier, preaching, prayer, and the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism. This is also why Paul wrote in another place, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, these amazing words. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. 
God's concern is first and foremost always with his own people, through whom he gains glory in the whole world. Now, the main reason the church does good in the world is not principally to benefit other people, needy people, people in the world, or even ourselves. We don't do good in the world for that reason. That's not the main reason. The reason we do good in the world, flowing out of our faith life together as the community of the church, is to bring the Holy Trinity glory in and through Jesus Christ in the entire expanse of all the created universe. So we want this glory to permeate everything, everywhere, everyone at all times, as it's all being brought under subjection to the great King Jesus Christ every day, every Lord's Day, all the time, working its way to that great day, the judgment day, the day of the general resurrection, which we were talking about even last Sunday on Easter One of the primary reasons that all the false gospels of do-goodism in the world, the sort of idea that the church exists to do things in the world, one of the reasons those false gospels always fail and are detestable in the eyes of God is that they're never primarily designed to bring Christ the glory ultimately. Typically it's to bring themselves glory, or the world glory, or something else, and they never, ever work. The lusting after the world's approval, its applause, inevitably leads to compromise with the world at the expense of the person and gospel of Christ. So as you enter into future phases in your own church life, always be thinking about that, that the church exists to glorify Christ. And there's just a few things we must do, but we must do them well, we must do them consistently, and we must do them with all our heart. The true church, unlike false gospels, views life, evangelism, service, and missions in a different way. We view it through the lens of the person of Christ, And because of this, and by God's grace alone, everything we do is done to honor our blessed Savior and no other human being ever, anywhere, at any time. Well, let's look now at the verses 1 and 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, do some exegesis today, and grasp the significance of Paul's introductory words. As I mentioned earlier in Pauline series that we've studied in the past, including 1 Corinthians, Romans, Galatians, Colossians, Ephesians, 2 Timothy, those come to mind right off the bat from 34 plus years over many uh, different series. We want to recognize that when Paul starts his letters, he's not wasting his words or God's and our time. He's not just using up ink just for the sake of being polite or saying things that normally people say at the beginning of of letters. That's not what's taking place. Instead of being tempted to skip over or pay no real attention to these words, let us rather fully absorb them and truly appreciate the significance of Paul's introductory words. First, He presents his credentials and his fellowship, verse 1a. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. 
Now, it's intriguing to me that in the same initial phrase that Paul begins this epistle, he mentions himself, his apostleship, Christ, the will of God, and another Christian church minister, that being Timothy. Now, why were all these subjects and dynamics necessary? Because this was the written word of God right here, and for the church to be assured of that, It was necessary that certain criteria be met, and this very much did include Paul's apostleship. And as I mentioned earlier, he had to defend that. That was especially the case in Corinth because it had been plagued by these false apostles. And they weren't the only church. Every time Paul would plant a church, the Judaizers, the demons would come in, try to steal the sheep away, draw the disciples away from Christ after themselves, to be bound to some law, some old covenant law, circumcision, dietary laws, something like that. And Paul would have to come back and correct those problems, and sometimes he did it with an incredible amount of passion. And you can imagine why, and he did it certainly for good reason in that sense. In 2 Corinthians, as I mentioned, chapters 10 to 13, Paul will deal a lot with that problem. It's also enlightening here that we read of the will of God being behind the fact that Paul was an apostle in the first place. It wasn't Paul's idea to be an apostle. It was God's idea. When he was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians, he wasn't saying, boy, I want to be an apostle of Christ in the church. I want to plant churches and build up the body of Christ. No, not at all. He had no interest in that. The reason Paul is such a great Calvinist is because he experienced it himself. He's going there to persecute Christians, and God arrests him on the road, turns him into an apostle. He didn't say, I want to sign up to be an apostle. God made him an apostle, and he calls himself an apostle here. And in verse 1a, we also see it ending with a direct reference to Timothy being with the apostle. And if you know Timothy, he was a very special young man to Paul. He was his spiritual son. He had a Jewish mother and a believing grandmother, but a father that was Gentile. Paul, Paul trained Timothy, taught him how to be a pastor, left him in Ephesus to pastor, valued Timothy a lot, and at this point in his career he had him. And that's sweet because no man, no matter how great, even an apostle Paul, is an island. We all need each other in this glorious ministry of the gospel even in our church, and we're enjoying that now. We'll enjoy it later this afternoon, many of us that are able to stay for the fellowship. So we know we have a true minister here. His name is Paul, and this should further inspire our confidence in this part of the written word of God. The significance of Paul's introductory words, he presents his credentials and his fellowship, and he addresses very real sinner saints, verse 1b. To the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Now this is a noteworthy phrase Paul uses here in 2 Corinthians, especially after he wrote 1 Corinthians. Paul is affirming that the congregation that gathered on Sunday mornings in that corrupt, wicked, vile city of Corinth to hear preaching, to pray, and to participate in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper was indeed, quote, the church of God, unquote. Isn't that amazing? God could plant his real church in a place like that. So never ever be discouraged. 
This in itself was huge, given Corinth's well-known sins, corruptions, divisions, problems, mismanagement of the Lord's Supper and fellowship and the treatment of the saints, which many of us remember from our study in 1 Corinthians. Then secondly, here in verse 1b, Paul seems to explicitly particularize this congregation with his words, in Corinth. Now, the only reason I even mention that is because some people are foolish enough to think that local churches aren't necessary. All you need is some online thing or some ethereal thing in the, in the cloud or something like that. Not at all. God is all about direct, hands-on, face-to-face, real Christians meeting on Sundays in that holy convocation of the church's worship. And finally, the words, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, what does that mean? Well, I like my good friend John Calvin's suggestion that these saints in the whole of Achaia, who are seemingly not being referred to in complete completion with what he said about the church in Corinth, could have been people who were real Christians, but because of where they lived, they were atomized, they were separated, and they hadn't yet been able to congregate as a true church on the Lord's Day. They haven't been able to be particularized and call a pastor and have a session and all of those important things. If that is true, it makes sense that he's saying, look, I'm writing this to the church in Corinth, but also to all the saints that are kind of spread around in other parts of Achaia, which was a part of Greece. Now, if that is the case, then somebody from the Corinthian church had to do a Paul Revere thing and take the letter to those people and make sure they got to see it and read it as well. Dears, let us be encouraged here as we think about verse 1 of 2 Corinthians, because... God gave his written revelation, which directs all people everywhere to Jesus Christ, but especially the church, because it's written to her, to real, regenerate people, but who really still were sinners, still struggled with sin. They needed to confess their sins, receive absolution, and know that the Messiah was washing them clean every Sunday and even throughout the week after we had met in the high and holy place. So this is good news for us who still struggle with sin, and that's all of us. So the significance of Paul's introductory words, he presents his credentials and his fellowship, he addresses very real sinner saints, and finally he blesses God's covenant inheritance, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what more, really, could we ever possibly need or want than grace and truth, or grace and peace, from God the Father, God the Son, which is conveyed to us through the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit? Grace and peace covers everything. Peace covers our trials, our struggles, our tribulations. Grace covers everything. It covers it in the blood and righteousness of Christ. Really, the whole rest, I think, of 2 Corinthians flows out of verse 2. I really do. Let's not miss the fact that God's grace and peace is not distributed indiscriminately. God isn't going around today like radio preachers telling everybody God loves them. God isn't telling everybody in the world today, grace and peace to you. 
Grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. Do your own thing. Grace and peace to you. Anybody in the world at any place under any condition. Grace and peace. That's not God. He doesn't do that. He is giving grace and peace to the church of God that met in Corinth. And by extension to the church of Christ that meets in Peoria County. Even here today. God is saying to you, who are faithful members of this church, or are on your way to that state by God's grace, grace and peace to you. Not everybody in the world. Grace and peace to you. It wouldn't even make sense to say that to people outside of Christ. They don't have any grace and they don't have any peace. Grace and peace is found only in Christ the Prince of Peace, the Person of Peace, the God-Man, Isaiah 9.6, and the one Christ in whom is all grace and truth, our opening verse today from John 1.14. So dears, if you're having a tough time of it today or this week or had it last week and you're struggling, and yet you are here Sunday to Sunday as you're able to be. Obviously, sometimes folks travel or sick, not feeling well. And you're a faithful churchman who loves God in and through Jesus Christ. And God is saying to you, grace and peace. And when we have Christ Jesus and his grace and peace, we have everything we could possibly ever need in that one blessed Redeemer. Let's do, as always, a little more application this morning and comprehend why epistolary introductions are still vital for us in the church today. Now, the word epistolary is just a word for an epistle, okay, and a letter. So why, why are the first words in an epistle or a letter, why are they still important for us in the church today? Somebody might be tempted to think, well, Paul's opening words and perhaps even all of his letter to Corinth only applied to them back there in the first century. But this supposition would be a mistake because all of Paul's missives that the Holy Spirit gave us in the canon of Scripture, though originally penned, granted to particular churches or in the case of of Philemon, an individual, all of them are equivalent to the Holy Scripture, the written word of God, inerrant and inspired. And if you ever have any doubt about that, I would reference for you 2 Peter 3.16, where Peter essentially directly says as much. So, hence, let us now better understand why epistolary introductions are still vital for for us in the church today. First, because we are continually in need of gospel instruction. Now, this is a really big point. We're always in need of gospel instruction. When we talk about the person of Christ, we're always joining that with the teaching of Christ, the gospel of Christ. The church exists to give teaching, doctrine, to build up the saints in the most holy faith. That's what the church is about. It's not about feeling and experience, although those things have a place and they flow out of true gospel doctrine, but it's about objective, concrete, real, truthful, gospel, historical teaching doctrine about the person and work, the atonement of Jesus Christ for poor, lost, dead, hopeless sinners outside of him. Uh, We've been studying uh, J. Gresham Machen, 
His book, uh, Christianity and Liberalism, uh, written in 1923, 100 years ago. And it's interesting that the liberal church 100 years ago said, people are good, God is father of all, and everyone's brothers. So because everybody's good, there's no sinners. So those people aren't qualified to be redeemed. Because Jesus Christ didn't come to call righteous people who don't need him. He came to call sinners, not good people, but real sinners. And so Machen does a really wonderful job of dealing with that. You know, the Corinthian church was originally planted by Paul, and it was even pastored for a while by him, and even educated by Paul. But in truth, behind Paul, really, and above Paul, was the one who actually planted, pastored, and educated the Corinthian parish in your church and every other true church in the whole world. And that one was and is Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of his worldwide flock, working, of course, with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Why do we need to want to and make sure we come back to church every Sunday? You ever ask yourself that question? Why do you do it? Well, is it not largely because you recognize that you need to, you want to, and you require teaching? Doctrine, because we forget, our minds slip. We get deceived by the lies and deceptions of the world and all its false gospels and all the false church gospels out there. Law works, people are good, God's the father of all, everyone's brother, there's no sin, there's no death, there's no condemnation, everybody goes to heaven. All those false gospels, they're still around, by the way. Machen did a cruel blow to the liberal church, but its foolish adherents still hang around in some places. The fact of the matter is that those are things that we need to be aware of and put down and even mock where necessary, only, though, to bring the true church, the glories of Jesus Christ, in the gospel doctrine. This is why we come back. Gospel doctrine unites us to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our only hope anyway and our only life, and it does it by faith, calls us to faith. That's the answer. One of the remarkably fascinating dimensions of the church's gospel ministry is that no matter how far we go in this understanding of who Christ is in the gospel of Jesus, there's always another spectacular vista for us to enjoy in Christ. It's ironic that we sang as an opening hymn today, I love to tell the story. And then like last stanza says something like, I love to tell the story of those who know it best. For they're still hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. That gospel doctrine is fresh and new every Sunday. And we need it. Why epistolary introductions are still vital for us in the church today because we're continually in need of gospel instruction that directs us to the person of Jesus Christ. God the Father and God the Holy Spirit always point the children of God, the truly redeemed people of God, his church, back to the Son of God, so that we can meet God at the only place he will be met, and that is the nexus of the Son of God, the second person, the God-man, Jesus Christ, the one mediator between the holy deity who sends sinners to hell 
and us wicked, vile, hopelessly lost in ourselves sinners that Jesus Christ came here to save and seek and draw irresistibly to himself and apply the atonement that was predestined and elected upon the true saints to them in time and space. 1 Timothy 2.5 And then, as the eyes of our hearts are fixed on Jesus, Hebrews 12.2, like a grand and glorious divine kaleidoscope, we now begin to perceive all three persons of the Blessed Holy Trinity. So the real issue for us here today, dears, is not what the world tells you is the real issue. Forget what the world has to say to you. Most of it's a lie. The real issue, what really matters, is Jesus Christ, our faith in him, our belief that he really did die for our sins, that he really was raised for our justification, and through him we can live lives of love for God and each other, with hearts full of joyful anticipation and grateful willingness to comply with this loving Father out of devotion and affection for him. If you think these verses are exciting, wait till next week. That is amazing. We're only going to look at a couple verses on the Father, God the Father, and it is incredible. So how is any of this possible? By faith in Jesus Christ. When by faith alone we come to comprehend who he is, what he's done for us, these things come to life and we understand. We grasp it. It's a miracle. Our Redeemer shed his blood for his church's sins. He rose from the dead to secure forever our full, free, legal, forensic, and imputed justification and righteousness before the holy God. Beloved, introduction to 2 Corinthians is a fresh presentation to us of our magnificent Lord Jesus Christ. Let us always be thankful, grateful, appreciative, and filled with awe over introduction to 2 Corinthians. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this great book and for the wonder and marvel of grace of God in Jesus Christ that you have shown even in just two verses. Thank you for your kind, tender, and everlasting mercies to us. We bless you and praise you and thank you in and through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.